Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. In our culture, in our day and age, from our early childhood on, we're raised to have a successful life. That's why we're taught to read, to write, and do arithmetic. It's why we learn trades and skills, why we go to school. We are raised to have and then taught to desire to, to live a successful life. We are rightly admonished to live up to our potential, to be all that we can be. And we shake our heads at those that choose not to live up to their potential. We wonder at those who squander their God-given talents. We shake our heads and wonder at those that destroy their lives through drugs and willful sin, who choose to live less than their potential. And our verses from today, they're given us to consider what the meaning of life is and to have our, us our, ask ourselves, what is a successful life? And once we ascertain that, to cause us to then to strive to live a successful life. So what's the meaning of life? What's your litmus test for a, what a successful life is? But more important than that, what is the litmus test for a successful life according to the Lord? We must know this. You're actually meant to know this. What is a successful life? What is the meaning of life? The answer for all humanity, for all time, is singular. It's Jesus Christ. He is the meaning of life, all life. John chapter 1, verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the life of all humanity, for all time, here in this realm no matter if they choose him or not. Matter of fact, he is the reason that there is life at all. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that had come into being. And more specifically, he, Jesus, is the definition of what a successful life is. Listen to John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Knowing God, this is life. In fact, this is the meaning of life. Knowing the only true God is life. Being in His Son, following His Son, being transformed more into the image of His Son. Jesus Christ is what is meant to live a successful life. But how are we supposed to do that? In fact, how are we to know God? And how do you have a successful life in God? The same way that Jesus did. Listen to the context in which that John 17, 3 verse is given to us. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh to all whom you gave him. He may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you here on earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus, he lived a successful life, 
because he obeyed and he served. He served his chosen elect children here in this realm, and he obeyed his Father in heaven. This is how he glorified his Father. This is the finished work that he completed. His life is the definition of successful. He is the definition of what the successful life in the Lord is. And to live a successful life in the Lord, we must, I must, you must emulate Christ. And this is what we must do. We must pick up our cross and follow Christ. Saints, knowing what our life is all about is important if we're ever going to have a successful life. We must know what we are aiming for to be able to do that. What example we have been given to emulate. Jesus said that eternal life was found in knowing Him, in knowing the Father. The Father. God. The one that Jesus came to make reconciliation with. Jesus said that he has made the Father known. But how? How did he do that? How did he make the Father known? Was it through his miracles? His kindness? How did he make him known? He preached. Listen to Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John had been delivered up to custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He preached the gospel. What is the gospel? Again, this is important since this is the single thing that we are commanded by Christ to believe in. Remember? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But do you know what the gospel is? Can you actually articulate it? You must be able to do that. If you know in whom you are to believe, if you know in who you do believe, you must know the gospel. Because there's plenty of people out there that tell you, I believe in God. But if you open the Bible and you show them through Scripture who God is, they will tell you, that's not the God that I know. Not the God that I love. It's important that you know in whom you believe. And to do this, you must know and understand the Gospel. Broadly speaking, the Gospel is the whole of the Bible, since it speaks about, defines, and illuminates the one who is the good news. And that's what the Gospel means. Good news. In the Greek, that word is uigalion, and it literally means good news. But why is Jesus the good news? Why is the message of the cross good news? Because of the bad news of Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Wait a minute. There's another word that we've got to define. What is sin? A bad action? A bad thought? Because if that's the definition of sin, then the definition of sin is very fluid. Because what, 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 person, what one person says is a sin, the other person may just say, that's just a lifestyle choice. So what sin? Who gets to decide? The Creator does. God decides what sin is. And the Bible defines sin for us. 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness? Huh, another word we've got to define. What law? Whose law? God's law. 
And the summation of the law of God is found in the first and the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Luke 10, 27. Which is the fullness of that first commandment that's given to us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And every time that we think that we can decide outside of God, every time that we make a decision that is contrary to the Word of God, we have made ourselves God. And this is the genesis of the original sin, when Satan told Adam and Eve that they could decide to obey God or not. When he said that God was withholding good from them in the, in the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that by eating of it, he, God, he knew that they would be like him. And that was their desire. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be God. And this is the sin of the fallen world. We have other gods before Him. Most prevalently, the God that we have before Him is ourselves. We decide, oh, we know best what is best for us. But sin is not an action. Sin is a state of being. The first chapter of Romans explains sin for us. If you ever desire to get a glimpse into what was going on in the garden with Adam and Eve, just read Romans 1, 18-32, and you're going to understand. Because sin is the opposite of good. Okay, there's another one of those words that we've got to define. What is good? Who decides what is good? Isn't good subjective? Subject, subjective? Good? Bad? <clears throat> I mean, what one person thinks is bad, another person may think is fine or even good. Who decides what's bad? Well, the one that's good. And no one is good except God alone. Mark 10, 18. God is good. God is love. God is the Creator. And for this reason, anything that is contrary to Him is sin. And He's given us His law in order that we can know just how contrary to Him we actually are. And make no mistake about it, the law of God, it points to the holiness of God. It displays for us the complete otherness of Him and just how far we have separated ourselves from Him through our sin. Sin is anything that is outside of God, anything that's not done through God, and anything that's not done for God. And this is why even those kind actions of the unregenerate are sin. All their healing, all their feeding, all their building, all of it is sin if it's not done for the glory of God. And according to God, the wages of sin, the punishment for sin, is death. Romans 6.23 And there, that's the bad news. But the good news is also found in the second half of that Romans 6.23 verse, the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6-8. through 8. And those Philippians 2 verses, that is the definition of what a successful life in God looks like. 
And this is what we are to proclaim, to preach, to evangelize. Knowing what the good news is, it's fundamentally important, simply because the good news is the cure for the bad news. But more important than that, the good news is Christ. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.2 Again, the definition of a successful life in God. And we must come to know him. We must come to understand that he is our life. For in him we live and move and exist. Acts 17.28 I've taken the time this morning to rehash the gospel. To restate the gospel. Because of the letter that was given John to give to this church in Smyrna. Because of the truth given to us in our verses from today. The saints in Smyrna, they lived a successful life. They were living up to their potential. And this thinking, the suffering for the gospel, ordinary people suffering for the gospel, that's a foreign concept in modern evangelicalism. We don't understand that His salvation, the salvation of God, is not primarily for our here and now. His salvation the thing, the major benefit of His salvation is our reconciliation with God for all eternity. Our here and now is included in that. And also, it is only in our here and now when we get to bring glory to God through our actions. This is the only time, the only place that we are told that we are able to bring glory to God through our actions. Here, now, in this realm, and we do this by picking up our cross and following Christ through dying to self on a daily basis. And we can only do that if we know Christ and He must be our all in all. If we're ever to make heads or tails of our life in Christ, of the benefits of our salvation, we must finally realize that He has to be not only the first and the last, not only the one who is dead and has come to life, He must be our first and last, simply because He was dead and has come to life. And the letter that was given to John to pass to the church to Smyrna is a great example of why we must desire Jesus above all else. Why He must be our everything. Simply because of what is said of Him in verse 8. And to the angel of the church of, uh, of Smyrna write this, This is what the first and the last, He who is dead and He who has come to life, says. See, Christ is not only the one who is dead and has come to life. He's not only the first and the last, the last but he's the one who actually loves and cares for this church and this church as well. These saints in Smyrna were the joy that was set before Christ. The same Christ who has all authority on earth and in heaven, Matthew 28, 18-20. And, and this Christ, this Jesus, He has a message to pass along to this church. A message that He gave to His slave John, who was at that moment suffering for His faith in that one who was alive and had died. 
Remember how John described himself in Revelation 1.9, your brother, fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus? I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. John, the Apostle John, understood the importance of knowing Christ. He understood the benefit of being in, of the redeemed of God. He knew the why of life. John lived a successful life too. But do you know this? Do you understand the benefit of being given ears to hear? And this goes back to that preaching of the gospel, the why of it. Because if the preaching of the gospel is done as a get-out-of-jail-free card, if we think that the benefit of the gospel is for this life, if we tell people that Jesus loves them as they are and He has a much happier life here for you, a better life here, then we're preaching a false gospel. And we will sorely be disappointed in this life and with that Lord. We will have unmet expectations and we'll be disappointed with the God that we are claiming to be Jesus. If we preach that gospel to people, then we are presenting a false God to them. One that will not prepare them to live a successful life. And more than that, preaching that false gospel demonstrates that we don't know what a successful life in Christ looks like. And that we're living far below our potential in Christ. Remember, the Lord, the one who walks among the lampstands, who's holding tightly to the angel of each one of these churches, he intimately knows and intimately, deeply loves these saints as he does you. Again, they are the joy that was set before him that he died to redeem. And listen to what he says to the church in Smyrna, beginning in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews, but they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, there are men and women out there in our world that preach a Christ that has come to make you wealthy, healthy, happy, and successful. A gospel which the carnal mind desires. And the preaching of that false gospel is successful in this realm. And the reason that it is successful is that we want health, wealth, position, and ease of life. We really do. All of us do. There's not one person who can honestly say that they don't want or desire these things. We love our comfort. We love our modern conveniences. We love having stuff. And there's not a single person here in this room who is praying for poverty or for sickness or for persecution. In fact, we will often warn other people when we hear them talking about wanting to pray for patience or wanting to know their sin. Because we'll tell them, be careful, because God will hear that prayer and He will honor that prayer. And He's going to bring about that which you prayed for. And He will do that through suffering and hardship. And we don't like suffering or hardship. We truly don't want to live below we truly do want to live, excuse me, below our potential and live our best life now. And this is where we need to remember that even though that is true, there's a fundamental difference between the redeemed and the unredeemed of God. And it's not a choice. Our sonship is not that kind of difference. The Christian is a completely new creation. Before we came to Christ, we were a breed apart from Christ. 
He says in Ephesians 5.8, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. According to the Lord, anyone that is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. 1 Corinthians 5.17 A new creation. We are more than conquerors. Romans 8.37 But we need to understand how we conquer and what the Lord sees and means by conquering. Because our idea of what that means is not what the Lord has promised us. That life, the life that we think that that means, is living much lower than the expectations of the Lord. The one in whom we live and breathe, the one who has redeemed us from our sin by His blood, that one made us a promise. A promise that is found over and again in the Bible. He told us the benefits of being found in Him. He told us what the successful life in Him looks like. Matthew 10, 22. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and they will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. That's the same promise of Mark 13, 13. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The same promise as 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Same messages of Matthew 5.10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Be glad! For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the same message of John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. God the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one from whom all blessings flow. He is intimately involved with the life of the believers in this church in Smyrna. The church that he says that he knows their tribulation and poverty. And again, that word that is translated as know doesn't mean to know as if he found out secondhand of their tribulation. That he was completely unaware of what was happening there. Saw a newscast on Fox News and now he knows. No saints, he knows intimately. And this is key in understanding the benefit of our salvation in Christ. If we think that we chose Jesus and did so in order that we can have a better marriage, to get off of drugs, to have a happy, productive, easier life, then we're going to be sorely disappointed in what we think our life with Christ is supposed to be. He knows their tribulation, which means trouble. And the trouble that they would have been facing was found in being made outcast within that society. They wouldn't go along with the false god worship of the pagans, either the Greeks, the Romans, or the Jews. And for that reason, they were ostracized. They would have been shut out of the work guilds because they wouldn't go along to get along. They would have been disowned by many of their families because of the stain of calling on Christ as Lord and Savior. And this is the trouble that they had faced by accepting Jesus into their heart. And this is why they were poor in the things of the world. And this is why the church was very important to them. 
Because they would have traded their careers for the privilege of knowing God. They would have willingly traded their biological families and social status for the honor of being made a child of God. Being successful in Christ had cost them everything in this world. They had traded it all for Christ, for His body here in this realm. And they had no one else except each other in the Lord. And the church as an institution hasn't changed. We have changed, though. We don't esteem the body of Christ in the same, same way as these saints did, only because God has not allowed us to feel the reality of persecutions as He had with this church. The church in Smyrna, that church was, in fact, living its best life now. Unlike the church found in Ephesus, the church it was commended for its works, but was strongly warned about leaving or losing their first love. That church was told, repent, do the deeds that you once did, or you're going to have your lampstand removed. But this church, the church in Smyrna, isn't warned because they had not left their first love. They clung to that one who was their first love. And they did this because of the tribulation and poverty that they lived in. And again, that is the successful life in God. And this was the plan of God for them. And it wasn't going to get any easier. Verse 10, Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And then you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. For many who call themselves Christians in this country, they see what's going on in our country and they fear what they see. They fear the cultural shift and they fear the hostility that is, becoming, that is beginning to become more and more vocal and even sometimes violent against God and His people. And reading verse 10 is oxymoronic outside of Christ. What he said in verse 10 should in fact be reason to fear. Christ told them, your life has been hard. Never fear. It's going to get harder. In fact, what you've known as tribulation won't even be able to be compared to the testing that you're about to have, and to have happen to you. So don't fear. That is completely oxymoronic. In fact, this sounds like double talk. It's not logical. It's not reasonable. Not for those that are living to be successful in this realm anyway. Because there's only one reason why this is not an oxymoronic statement. Because of Luke 12, 5. I will show you who to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And the meaning of the ten days spoken in verse 10 Man, it's garnered so much attention in the last 150 years. What does it mean? What's he pointing to? Is 10 the law? What is he talking about here? Is it just a short amount of time? It's actually given to us here for the simple reason that the Bible is all has one purpose. And that purpose is to illuminate Jesus Christ. And the 10 days that are spoken of here, <clears throat> is given to us and given to them, the church in Smyrna, to draw their attention, to, to make them think of another prophetic, an apocalyptic book. 
the book of Daniel. And from that book, the saints in Smyrna were to then understand how they were to deal with the civil authorities that they lived under. They and we are meant to go back to Daniel, to read Daniel, to know Daniel, to see how true Christians live successful lives, how they are to submit under laws that are contrary to the Word of God. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 1 of Daniel. Daniel 1. Now, verses 1 through 4 are pretty sterile in their description. It tells of the fall of Jerusalem, the capture and abduction of some Jewish people, including four youths, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whose names get changed to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Familiar with those names? Yep, those Jewish boys had their names changed. But what those first four verses don't tell us is what is stated by historians who said that would have happened, what would have happened to them before they had their names changed. Those four young men, probably 13 years old or so, they would have witnessed their families being murdered in front of them. Then they would have been castrated. And then they'd have their names changed. And it's in that tribulation that the context of the ten days first comes into play. We're told in verse 5 of chapter 1, the king anointed them for daily ration for the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to stand before the king. Only there was this little issue for Daniel. Daniel, verse 8, said it in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And then skipping down to, Dan, to, chapter, or to verse 11, Daniel said to the overseer, who the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Do you recognize that language from verse 10 of, Re of Revelation chapter 2? Test 10 days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And you're thinking, what is that all about? Well, this is what it's all about. Daniel is telling them, yes, you can murder my family. Yes, you can change my name. Yes, you can make me a eunuch. But the word of God is still remains my life. And that's the meaning of the ten days given here in the letter to Smyrna. Do you understand that the saints in Smyrna, they could have ended their tribulation at any point. They could have ended their poverty. They could have become a mega church. They could have become a wealthy church. They could have lived their best life. And all they would have had to do is go along to get along. All they would have to do is to compromise. All they had to do is start living to be successful in this realm. All they had to do was to turn Judas. The question that we must ask ourselves is, what is the rule and authority over our lives? How much are we willing to compromise to save our jobs, to save our social standing? How much are you willing to suffer to remain faithful to the Word of God? Yes, not bowing down to the woke political system may cost you your job when you won't lie about the sex of a person or their sexual orientation. But are you like these saints 
who are willing to suffer to remain faithful. Because that was the admonishment of the Lord to the saints in Smyrna. He said, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. And you're thinking, that can't be what Christ meant in verse 10 from Revelation 2. Can it? I mean, he seriously can't mean that, can he? Doesn't seem loving. Doesn't seem reasonable. Mark 8, 34-38. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. We see later in the book of Daniel what fidelity to Christ looks like. In chapter 3, verses 16 through 28 of Daniel, there the king demands that everyone sacrifice to him as God. Well, you don't have to really mean it. You just have to go along. You have to go through the motions. And then you could carry on with your life. Only, you see, there was these three young men. Interesting that we know, every one of us know their names. Isn't that kind of interesting? There's three young men who wouldn't just go along to get along. Verses 14 through 8 of chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you're not serving my gods and don't worship the golden image that I set up? Now if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, then you shall fall down and worship the image that I have made. But if you don't worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is out there that can save you out of my hands? And is this not the thing that we fear when our boss tells us you will lose your job if you do not sign that statement? Or if you, you will lose your job or you will not get that contract if you are not willing to use those pronouns? And what God is there that's going to save you out of my hand? And did you notice also that Nebuchadnezzar that king, he's really just telling them, go along to get along. Don't make a fuss over that which really isn't that big of a deal. I mean, everybody else is doing it. Be reasonable. But verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to respond to you with an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will save us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods and we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. And that statement that they just made is oxymoronic outside of Christ. Our God can save us out of your hands, but even if he doesn't, they're not being wishy-washy. Those three men they understood the importance of life in Christ. They understood our God is able. But if he deems our death to be the best manner in which we are to bring glory to his name, then so be it. 
And that's what being a faithful to the end looks like. The church in Smyrna here is being reminded who they are to fear and then why they don't need to fear anything that man may do to them because they are a breed apart. They have been redeemed to God and nothing can happen to them apart from Him allowing it to happen to them. And according to the Word of God, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 We are to know this. We are to know this as Christ knew things. But do we know this? Do we actually know this as truth? The church in Smyrna knew this. And saints, they are not the neglected of God. They are not the red-headed stepchildren of God. If anything, they are the apple of His eye, those that He is showering His love and affection on. And how can you, I know this to be true? Because of Psalm 116, verses 12-15. through 15. What shall I give to Yahweh in return for all His bountiful dealings with me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I shall pay my vows to Yahweh. Oh, may it be in the presence of all His people. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of His holy ones. Psalm 116, verse 15. And that Jesus, that Jesus is offensive to the Western evangelical. They don't love that Jesus that finds the death of His saints precious. And they don't desire to know that Jesus either. They love their own version of Jesus, the one that places hedges of protection around them, gives them traveling mercies, showers blessings on them in the form of health, wealth, and good looks. But God testing the righteous, placing His chosen sons and daughters in harm's way on purpose? No way, Jose. But the one who is dead and is alive, the one who is first and last, that walks among the lampstands and intimately knows the tribulation and suffering of these saints, the one who has told them, be faithful even unto death and you will receive the crown of life. He explains what that crown of life is. He explains to them why they should not fear. The reason that all tribulation, all poverty here in this realm is for our good and his glory. And he does it in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. That's important. Understanding how bad that second death is, that's important in living a successful life in Christ. To every one of the churches, in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, Christ ends that personal letter to them with the same admonishment. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what follows that? It applies to all believers, to every church. To the first three churches, after that admonishment, he promises salvation. To the church in Ephesus, it comes in the form of, I'll grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which is Christ. To Smyrna, they won't be hurt by the second death because he has conquered the second death. To Pergamum, he says, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, which is Christ. But to the rest of the four churches, he just gives them this admonishment. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Why? Why the difference? Why the promise of salvation to the first three churches? And then just a warning of he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, to the rest. Well, Jesus himself gave us the reason for ending these letters in this matter. In the Gospel of Matthew. Grab your Bibles once again and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, we're told of a large crowd coming to hear Christ teach. And we're told in verse 3 of him teaching them in parables, beginning with the parable of the sower and the seed. And by the way, understanding that parable unlocks all the other parables that Christ spoke, which is why he explained the meaning of that parable. So when the disciples came to him after the crowd dispersed and asked him, Why do you teach the crowds the way that you do? His answer was this. Look down at verse 11. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Hey, wait a minute. That's not inclusive. That's not right. That that's, seems unloving. I mean, Jesus isn't loving all the people all the same. That's unfair, isn't it? But then Jesus goes on in verse 12. Whoever has to him shall be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever doesn't have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. So with that explanation, think about the parable of the sower and the seed. And those that heard at first, they were glad and then walked away. Or they withered and died because of tribulation and suffering. Read that parable again, and then remember the explanation of that parable by Christ in light of what he just said. In verse 13, he says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they don't see, and while hearing, they don't hear, nor do they understand. And in him, in them the prophecy of Isaiah who is, is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you won't understand. You will keep on seeing, but won't perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Verse 16. But, again, here's the distinction between the redeemed of God and the not redeemed. Verse 16. But, blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Do you truly think the disciples made a wise decision to open their eyes and their ears? Is that why you think they could see and hear? And then he says something that just reinforces how important the gospel is. For truly I say to you, verse 17, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they didn't hear it. What Christ said concerning the prophet Isaiah, that all comes from chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. The same thing that the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel would say to those that don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. And all three of those prophets, they warned an idolatrous people of the coming just judgment of God on them. Think about what's coming in the book of Revelation. 
people who should have been able to hear, who they should, who should have been able to see. That's the same thing that Jesus has just said to this generation in Matthew. It's the same thing that he warns the churches in the book of Revelation concerning. Go back, read through the book of Isaiah. You'll see that he preaches repentance pretty straightforward in chapters 1 through 5, with the exception of one single parable in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And then he has an encounter with the Lord, where the Lord tells him to render the ears dull of those who will not hear. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And then his preaching becomes a mixture of parables and symbolic actions. And Ezekiel follows the same pattern as well. And all of these warnings, the he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They are given for a threefold effect. The first is for those that have ears to hear, who actually do hear and heed what they hear. The second is for those that are backslidden or dull of heart, who will then repent and do the works keeping with repentance. And then the third is for those that do not have ears to hear. They continue to hear, and the word hardens their heart even more. And it will be used against them in the court of God's law. And it's to that last group. They are the ones that should, in fact, fear. The saints in Smyrna that had suffered tribulation, poverty, being made outcasts in society, who would have been hunted down, locked up, killed, they are told, do not fear, because they are living a successful life in Christ. But it's those who read this, those who heard this, and who would not suffer, who would not persevere, who would not overcome, they are the ones who should fear. Well, they may have escaped persecution through their cagey means, through simple double talk and compliance with the world. They may not have suffered financial loss because they wouldn't stand for truth. They may not have been locked up because of their faith. And they may have been able to go about what is considered the normal life, the good life, the true Christian life. But it's they who should fear because they could not hear what the Spirit was saying to the churches. What was being said to them in parables was hardening their already hard heart and would stand against them when they stood before the one who told them the truth of the gospel. And Jesus never watered the truth down for those that would not hear. He preached the same gospel truth to all people. And no matter what they do to us, we should preach the gospel to all creation. Not for them, but for God. Because He doesn't need us, but He's given us ears to hear. He's given us eyes to see the reality of His holiness. And it's for this reason we should preach the gospel. It's this reason we should stand for righteousness. It's for that reason we should be willing to suffer persecution, poverty, loss of freedom, and even loss of life. And again, this is the successful life in Christ. And to be able to live this type of life, Christ must be our all in all. And we must know that man can do nothing to us outside of God ordaining that it should happen. Again, 
We're to know. We, we truly are to know that all things work together for the good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. The saints in Smyrna were some of those that loved God and were called according to His purpose. And they suffered. They were poor. They would be locked up. And they would die. But they never left their first love. And that is the successful life. And this is what is what is meant by being more than conquerors. They suffered and they clung to the one who was their all in all. The one that told them, do not fear. And they overcame and they were not hurt by the second death. And I pray that God would grant each of us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches that in hearing we will esteem our salvation, understanding what our reconciliation to God truly means, that we would understand our life in Christ. And in doing so, that we would esteem Christ as being of more value than any of the things of God. That we would esteem Him of more value than anything and everything that this world could ever offer us. that we would remain faithful to the end. Let's pray.